BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, June 19th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash inquiringminds. That's audible.com slash inquiringminds. If you love podcasts about science, which at Inquiring Minds, we hope you all do, or even if you just like a good story, check out The Story Collider, a weekly podcast that shares people's true personal stories about how science affects their lives. If you think of Inquiring Minds as a way of looking at science and society, think about Story Collider as a way of looking at science and your personal life. Some are funny, like Wyatt Snack from The Daily Show's hilarious tale of drunk driving for science, and some are more dramatic, like Sid Roy of Virginia Tech, who tells his story of uncovering the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. And we, Kishore and I, have both told our stories on the podcast, too. Mine is a little embarrassing. Let me just say that it involves a man chart. You can find them in the full back catalog of hundreds of science stories at storycollider.org. Check it out. So what gets you up in the morning? And you don't want me to just say alarm clock. <laughs> well, no, if that's the truth, that's what I want to hear. Uh, well, honestly, it's it's my son like coming and waking us up in the morning. But uh, for me, I, I have this amazing set of jobs in science that I can't wait to get to work towards and explaining and talking to scientists every day, all day long. So if you didn't have the alarm clock and you didn't have the child, do you think you would wake up around the same time? Um, yeah, close to it. I imagine like, you know, Even I would sleep to... in a little bit longer uh-huh. without, you know, without the kid. But I think I would probably get up around, you know, eight o'clock every morning. What about if you stayed up really late? Are you able to sleep past the time that you usually get up? Only if I like way overdo it. <laughs> Like where it's like two, three, four in the morning. Yeah. So do you ever wonder how your brain manages to know what time it is? No, but I imagine you do. (laughs) Man, really? Am I the only one for whom this is fascinating? You know, I've been fascinated about the concept of time. And, you know, it is, as we heard on a previous episode, the most common noun in the English language. And in fact, in many different languages, it's something that a lot of people are obsessed about. And it's something that, you know, is makes a huge difference in terms of what we choose to do when and, and in terms of how we set up our lives. And, you know, there's different ways that our brain can tell time on different scales. You know, of course, we know about the circadian clock, which is what gets us up in the morning, presumably what tells us when we should be hungry and when we shouldn't. Um, But there are so many other ways in which our brain estimates time. And we're finally starting to understand how they all work. This is on a cellular level you're talking about? On all kinds of different levels. And so I had a conversation with one of the professors at UCLA. So I got my PhD at UCLA. And I remember uh, very much uh, the kind of work that Dean Bonamano was doing then. And so I was thrilled to catch up on what he's been doing lately, uh, which is in addition to his own research, putting out a book called Your Brain is a Time Machine, the Neuroscience and Physics of Time. And what's really cool about the way that Dean 
main things is that it's not just limited to the neuroscience, which, you know, for some people can get really granular, like it can get really specific, and it's hard to see the forest for the trees. But he also raises questions about physics, <laughs> and about, you know, the relationship between our conception of time and the unfolding of time in, in other ways. So like when time slows down during important moments, like, I think back to when my kid walked for the first time, I remember it taking forever for him to take those first couple steps. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that. (laughs) And I'll just, I'll just, you know, spoil that for you and say he probably took the same amount of time, (laughs) but it was all in your brain. I know this from the video evidence. (laughs) Okay, well, maybe he was a slow walker. (laughs) (laughs) So that'll be our show for today. But let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Dean Bonamano. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash inquiringminds and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash inquiringminds. That's audible.com slash inquiringminds and get started today. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. One book that you might want to download is the book that we discussed today by Dean Buonamano. It's called Your Brain is a Time Machine, The Neuroscience and Physics of Time. And it's awesome. Your membership with Audible includes one free audiobook every month and exclusive sales 30% off all regularly priced audiobooks. There are also free apps for iPhone, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. And unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your own books. And there's a great listen guarantee. You didn't like the book you got? You can swap it out. So go to audible.com slash inquiringminds today and sign up for a 30-day trial. And we want to remind our listeners that if you like Inquiring Minds, you'll probably also like another podcast about science called Story Collider. Check it out at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Dean Buonamano. It's a pleasure to be here, Andre. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you, especially about a topic that is so dear to my heart, time. (laughs) So this is something that you've studied for a while. Tell me a little bit about how you got interested in studying time. That's a great question. Time is not one of the fields in neuroscience that I think naturally attracts people to the field like consciousness or memory or disease. I was interested in time. I blame, I think, my grandfather who gave me a stopwatch at a very young age and I become sort of obsessed, obsessed in timing how long it took everybody to do things. Um, but as a PhD in neuroscience, science, I was really quite amazed at how little we knew about how the brain tells time. Um, little things we wanted to do in, um, with a couple of colleagues when I was actually, this is now when I was a postdoc, we wanted to know if when people learned to tell one interval apart, they got better at telling other intervals apart. And then we looked through the literature and were surprised that nobody really knew the answer to these questions. So my interest sort of um, came in part from seeing that there's a huge gap in our understanding and a very important question in neuroscience. And I think one of the things that makes you particularly special is that you seem to study time, but the types of tools that you use to study it vary a lot. So, you know, a lot of neuroscientists stick to animal work or human work or fMRI, but that doesn't characterize your career. So are you driven by the questions and, you know, use whatever tools are available? And sort of how does that, you know, shape how you conduct your research? Yeah. In other words, what you're saying is I'm all over the place, which is true. (laughs) And, um... We use computational, um, neurocomputational modeling. So we do um, computer models of how we think the brain works and tells time. So that's one aspect of our work. And we believe that's absolutely necessary because the brain is so complicated that I don't think we'll be able to understand it without doing the computational part. But then we do some human psychophysics work, um, as you know, with music perception, for example, um, as well as some animal work. But one of the things we particularly sort of interested and proud of is 
if you believe, as I do, that timing is sort of a fundamental computation the brain performs, that the brain neural circuits evolved to tell time, maybe we can study timing and how the brain tells time in vitro just by using cultures, right? getting chunks of tissue in addition, seeing if, those, if that tissue can tell time. And so that's when people start to think about the fact that, you know, we have biological clocks in us and they're, they're somehow tracking time. You know, how true is that? And, and what do those clocks look like? Yeah, that's a very fun and, and interesting question. So to, to answer that, I think it's, it's useful to just do a very brief comparison with man-made clocks. So human beings, our species, have spent millennia making ever-improved clocks, right, from from sundials to pendulum clocks to quartz crystal watches to atomic clocks. And today, by the way, we measure time better than we measure anything else, period. So as complex as um, certain clocks are, they rely on this very simple principle, right? Whether it's a pendulum clock, a quartz watch, or an atomic clock, they rely on the very simple principle of counting oscillations. They're just, you have an oscillator, a time base, and just counting the ticks of that oscillator, whether right? it could be the pendulum swing of a pendulum or the vibration of a cesium um, molecule uh, atom. So um, it's reasonable to ask, well, is that how the brain tells time? By just having an oscillator and um, counting the ticks of that oscillator. And the answer is no, it's not. The brain has many different ways to tell time. And really none of them are sort of based on counting the ticks of the oscillator. So the circadian clock is indeed an oscillator. Um, and the circadian clock, the master circadian clock in your suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is telling you the time of the day, is telling time within the period of that oscillation. So the oscillation lasts 24 hours. This is the oscillation of proteins within these cells. And it tells you what phase of that oscillation is. But the suprachiasmatic nucleus has no idea how many days have gone by. It doesn't keep track of how many oscillations um, it has undergone. So I want to I want to kind of explore that a little bit more. So so we have this nucleus, we have these cells in it. Do they produce a protein and then you know it diminishes and that's how it can tell sort of what time of day it is on the basis of how much protein there is left? Like how does that actually work? So it's um it's a principle that's sort of based on a feedback loop. In the book, I give this example of so it's it's not too unlike the the complex principle that guides our our toilets, which is when you flush the toilet, the valve goes down and water comes in, and then as the water rises, it closes. So at the protein level, what's happening is DNA makes this protein, and the protein turns off the DNA that's making it. So it's this negative feedback loop that takes approximately twenty four hours. Um, and this is something that exists in almost all our cells. And by the way, you don't need a brain to tell, um, to have a circadian clock. You can, uh, even single cell bacteria can tell time um, at that level. So, but what's important is that that circadian clock doesn't have a minute hand, much less a second hand. So how do you tell time in music or tell time when the, you're waiting for the red light to change at a traffic stop and so forth. So that's a totally different mechanism. And that mechanism probably has, has more to do with the dynamics of neurons. So neurons create patterns of activity that change in time. And the best evidence today is that it's these dynamics, these changing patterns of neural activity that allow us to tell time on the scale of milliseconds to seconds. And so are people better or worse than this on the basis of their neuroanatomy? Or is it, you know, on the basis of their training? I imagine, obviously, neuroanatomy is correlated to training. But is there something that we know about how good people are at doing that, this kind of tracking time on the order of minutes or seconds? Well, as you might expect from something that's non-centralized, something that we have many circuits in the brain telling time, there's, you can be good at one form of timing, but not particularly good uh, another form of timing. So maybe a trained musician is very good at um, press, uh, um, playing a musical instrument with a, a tempo of 20 beats per minute, but not be able to time very well the duration of a traffic light or something like that. So precisely because of the diversity of 
of mechanisms in our brain, I don't think there's a general ability that people are good at all types of timing or not very good at um, all types of timing. But to sort of um, elaborate on that uh, a bit is we certainly learn and we improve like most skills the brain is capable of. Um, practice makes perfect. So that's definitely the case with timing too. So I'm going to switch gears for a second and talk a little bit about this this idea of, of musicians and how they tell time. And uh, that's because what you just said is really interesting to me because I've interviewed this percussionist who's the principal percussionist for the San Francisco Symphony. And he related the story of how, um, you know, he was hanging out with a musician friend and, and she was making them French press coffee and she set a timer for four minutes. And, uh, and you know, she said, uh, you know, before the four minutes are up, I, I will know exactly about when that is. And he, he was like, oh, sh- surely you can't. And then around the four minute mark, both of them were like, huh, shouldn't the timer go off? And then bing, it went off. <laughs> so is that just a, you know, is that an example of them sort of, you know, believing that they're good at this particular task? And there's a little bit of maybe confirmation bias. Oh, you know, it went off and I was right. So it must be good at this. Or is there any evidence that they actually are better at this kind of time estimation or that they spend a lot of time in the kitchen maybe um <laughs> yeah so um no i don't i think the best I, I don't think the data would necessarily back up the notion that your ability to time on one scale would generalize to that other so even so the some of the early studies that um we actually did were surprising in the sense that if we trained people to discriminate a hundred millisecond interval. So this is pretty quick, but it's in with the musical range. So you just listen to two tones like beep beep, and then you have to determine if that's longer or shorter than another comparison, beep beep or something like that. Um, and what we were very surprised to learn very early on was that um, if you train, people get better at discriminating that, but they don't get better at other intervals. So they don't get better at the 200 millisecond interval or the 500 millisecond interval. So this was one of the first early findings that suggests that you know, wait a minute, if you had one master clock in your head and that clock was getting better, you should generalize to these other intervals. Yeah, maybe they're just used to making coffee, <laughs> right? I, I didn't want to put that in those terms, but maybe <laughs> you should go back and talk to them about that. Okay, so let's talk a little bit then about what that means in terms of what's going on in the brain. So if the suprachiasmatic nucleus is involved in telling time on a 24-hour scale, what are the brain regions or, you know, what what do we know about, is it a particular set of regions? Is it uh, just neurons distributed everywhere? Is it synchrony amongst neurons? How, how do we do that kind of time estimation? Yeah, so... The, um, that's a great question, and, and we can make a comparison, right? And, and this is something that, that's close to your heart. If I asked you that question about memory, part of your answer would be, well, what type of memory are you interested in, right? So one of the most fundamental um, discoveries, I think, of the 20th century in neuroscience was that memory is highly distributed, and it depends on you have to say where that memory is located. You have to say... Um, ask what type of memory are you talking about? Are you talking about the ability to ride a bike or to remember a name? Um, And the same is true of timing. So if you're talking about auditory um, timing, the ability to discriminate the interval between um, tones, for example, well, the evidence is, is that part of that is probably happening in early sensory areas. But if you're talking about your ability to tap your, um, say, tie your shoes with a fast or slow rate, that's probably more in motor areas. So neuroscientists have recorded from a vast number of brain areas, and in almost all these areas, whether it's the cerebellum or the hippocampus or the auditory cortex or the motor cortex or the prefrontal cortex, there seems to be what we call population clocks. What that What that means is that the patterns of neurons are changing, and you can tell um, the time based on which neurons happen to be fired. So maybe neuron one fires first, then neuron two, and neuron three, neuron four, neuron five. That's of course in a simplification. But the idea is, is that these patterns of neurons can uh, encode time, and that um, this is happening throughout the brain. And and in a way, doesn't this make sense? Because timing is so important for animal evolution for animals that it wouldn't it would be strange to have allocated something so important to a single part of the brain. 
Yeah, you know, but as you're talking, it's sort of, you know, you you started at the top saying you, you didn't want to study consciousness, but in, in some ways you're studying something that is has the same problem, which is there's no little person in the brain who is getting this information and then looking at the clock to figure out what time it is, right? So, you know, it's this it's idea that people think, well, in order to be conscious, you kind of have to have somebody who's looking at the theater, right? Um, looking at watching consciousness in the brain, and there isn't one. And I think at some in some way, this is the same problem with time. There's no, there's no person looking at the watch. So it's kind of like a really deep question. <laughs> so who's who's reading the clock, right? So yeah. So first place, but timing. Okay, so timing is really important, and I think this is worth um, highlighting very briefly is that in many ways the brain's main function um, is temporal in nature. What I mean by that is that one of the brain's main roles is to predict the future. So your brain is always trying to predict what is about to happen. And the degree to which animals are able to predict the future translates into the evolutionary currency of survival and reproduction. So the brain evolved in many ways to predict the future and in many ways, the main function of memory is precisely to allow animals to better prepare and predict what is about to happen. So once you say, uh, uh, sort of um, embrace this importance of time, then you say, okay, well, many parts of the brain, many circuits in the brain are able to tell time. Now, the question you're asking is, who is reading it out? Well, the answer is, is it sort of other brain areas? So if you have one, if you need to play a musical piece and press um, certain keys on the keyboard at three seconds or four seconds and so forth. Well, the readout in that case is your motor system, right? The readout of the clock that's paying attention to this um, timer is your um, is is the motor output. If it, But in other cases, when I ask you, well, um, Andre, how long have we been having this um, chat? And I, you have this sense of how much time um, has elapsed. Um, and you say, well, then your readout is sort of much more um, fuzzy. And that's what you're getting to with consciousness, because then it's much more hard to pinpoint. But it's a subjective feeling of the passage of time. And that, of course, is truly very deep and um, difficult to address. But at the other sensory level, the readout is simply other neurons in, in um, downstream in the circuit. So I want to get back to this subjective experience eventually, because I think that's, you know, one of the most interesting things in your book where you talk about time dilation and, and so forth and under different um, circumstances in terms of our subjective experience of it. But I don't want to leave the question yet of uh, sort of just that kind of movement, the relationship between, you know, an action and the, the kind of ticking time in, in your neurons, uh, because this is something that a lot of um, musicians talk about that, you know, timing as they perceive it in terms of beat is really about movement. And uh, there's a sense of a coupling between um, how they move or how their body moves or even how they're imagining they move and their ability to sort of keep or feel a beat. Um, is there, have you done any work looking at how people estimate intervals when some, when those intervals are placed within a kind of musical context versus a non-musical context? Um. Not directly, but there's what I think what you're um, hinting at is indeed something that musicians or non-musicians alike um, often sort of resort to. If you ask people to time one second or to to determine if the two tones, beep beep, were short or long, um, some people say they visualize this. For example, some people say, oh, it's sort of like I'm driving in, a, uh, in my car and seeing the telephones go by, telephone poles go by, beep, 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 beep. Um, or musicians, of course, will tap their legs or move their body. So this sometimes people think about this as embodied time, where you're using the movement or dynamics of your body to help you tell time. And then people, well, is your body telling you the time? And I think some people have argued that. I would, I would advise against that. I think what's happening there is your brain is controlling your body, but your body has these longer time constants, if you will, and the body, and the brain has this incredible, um, incredibly opportunistic modus operandi, and it can get some timing information from your body, but your body is still being controlled by your brain. So I think the primary source there is still you're sort of exploiting 
the fact that your your body moves with certain types of tempos, and in some cases, musicians um, tap into those or exploit those to improve their own timing. So let's get back to this question of um, our sort of subjective sense of time passing in maybe sort of more the minute or the hour uh, timing. So you know, people sort of describe this phenomenon of being in in a state of flow where you know they almost either time goes by really quickly or it seems like things are going in slow motion when they're really engaged in a, in a task um, or, you know, like basketball players will talk about being in the zone. So it's this kind of sense of, you know, time just passing differently when you're in a different mental state. Uh, what's that all about? So, I, yeah, I think everything, everybody can relate to this at one level or to the other about being surprised by how much time has passed when you're really engaged in a task or, or or just wishing time would go by quicker when you're when you're in the dentist chair right and there's a couple of things to note there so first is the important difference between what we call prospective timing and retrospective timing so most of what you're talking about is um, prospective timing but there's this interesting paradox, which uh, actually Henry James referred to over a hundred years ago. Um, I'm sorry, William James referred to over a hundred years ago, in which sometimes now called the vacation paradox, which is maybe you're in um, Athens for the first time, the day you're seeing a lot of new sites um, um, throughout the day and having um, an enjoyable time. And time seems to be going by very quickly. Time seems to be flying. In other words, you're surprised that the day is already over. But in retrospect, that day seems to be lasted a long time. So it seems to be filled with events. Um, and so the paradox is that as it's happening, um, an engaging period of time can seem to fly by, but in retrospect, actually seems to last a long time. So this is because prospectively, you're using a timer in your brain. Um, and retrospectively, you're actually using memory to reconstitute or to guesstimate how much time has passed. So you have this retrospective timing and prospective timing. Now, what part of your brain or what's responsible for this illusion, we don't know. But there's very sort of preliminary evidence that the clocks um, in your brain or the timers that are relying on the neural dynamics might be run a bit um, slower when you're in a more excited state. Um, and that if your clocks are running slower, then external time seems to be going by more quickly, right? If your internal clock is running slow, that's as if the internal, the external clock, the objective time is running a bit faster. But, um, but, we've st but this is all very preliminary. We really don't know what's accounting for those illusions at this level. So, but if you had to speculate, would it be something like, okay, there's a certain, you know, state of neurotransmitter levels that can dictate whether neurons are going to, you know, sort of oscillate more or less quickly? Or, you know, is it, is it at that kind of a level? Or is it more about synchrony across different brain regions? No, if I had to speculate, I would probably say it's less to do with synchrony, but more to do with dynamics um, and that with certain when certain hormonal levels or neuromodulator neuromodulator levels are low for example maybe the neuron time constant of the neurons is a bit um, faster and that um, accelerates the dynamics so what we mean by this is imagine the ripples on a pond and you throw a pebble in and you can see these ripples expanding and if we took a bunch of pictures of that, right, and then I shuffled the pictures, you could reconstitute the order of that event because you can tell time by the diameter of the ripples, for example. Now, so that's in a sense what we mean by a population clock in the brain, except the patterns, instead of being ripples, are the, are the, the patterns, the activity of neurons. Now, if you um, imagine those ripples going faster or slower for some reason, that would cause time dilation or time compression. But I think there's a more deeper question that if it's okay, I'll, I'll get into here, which is the subjectivity of this. So there's the question of the clock, but there's the question of subjectivity in itself, which is how we perceive our conscious perception of time. And I think the question of dilation is a bit of a misdirection and here, 
let me use an example of um, body awareness. So this is getting to this issue of the brain creates these illusions. So if we think of body awareness, if you touch my finger, I feel you touching my finger out in space, outside my brain, but we both know that the important part is happening within my brain. So my brain is, in a sense, creating an illusion that, that um, something is, the important parts are happening out at the digit. And somebody with phantom limb, limb syndrome still feels their limb, even though it doesn't exist. So what we learn from body awareness in, in phantom limb syndrome is that the illusion is not the phantom limb, but the illusion is our normal perception of body. That's the very weird part, that we can feel our body to begin with. And I think this is the same thing with time. So the, the mystery is not so much time dilation or time compression, but our normal perception of time. How does the brain consciously perceive the flow of time? Once we understand that, I think the dilation and compression will basically just be parameters in the basic phenomena. Yeah, and that gets back to your you know, idea about how timing really, or, or, or the way we perceive or even create the sense of time is about predicting the future. It makes me think of the flash lag illusion, you know, where you see like a line that's going around in a circle and there's another line that is exactly aligned with it, but it's flashing. Um, and depending on how quickly it's going around the circle, it starts to look like it's lagging behind, even though on any, if you stopped it at any given moment, those two lines would be lined up. Are you familiar with that illusion? Absolutely. And, and it's one of those illusions that's a bit hard to explain on a podcast, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, as I, as <laughs> I try, I realize that it's very difficult. Uh, nice, nice try. Um, Next time you should do the video cast, I guess, for that one. But um, yeah, but yeah, what's, but, that, but that's what's going on? But sorry, the point there is is that it's a nice demonstration that your brain is sort of extrapolating into the future because one thing is moving. You have motion. You, if you want to interact, so think about it this way: you have something motion, and you're catching a ball. You don't want to catch the ball where it is now. You naturally have to extrapolate the position of the ball a bit into the future to make sure your hand's in the right place, right? So your brain is always naturally and unconsciously extrapolating to what's about to happen. Um, and the flash lag illusion is one, uh, uh, one example of that. Absolutely. Yeah, so so there's this um, coupling too in in a lot of different uh, sort of you know skilled sports. For example, I'm thinking like of the batter that is you know has a pitch coming at them where you know this is really important. They have to learn to predict where that ball is going to be before it even leaves the hand of the pitcher, or so I've been told. Is and and I've heard that okay, there is a lot of that. That's probably related to some. Um, you know, some combination of perceptual stuff plus, you know, cerebellum, which is all about, you know, fine motor discrimination. And so so tell me a little bit about, you know, the cerebellum's job in all of this, because I think for a lot of people, they think of the cerebellum as a key region uh, involved in timing. Yeah, well, I think there's some truth to that. Um, you know, decades ago, people wondered, is, is the cerebellum a master clock? I don't think, um, if, I, I don't think anybody would really argue that. Um, nowadays, but I think there's there's incredibly strong evidence that the brain, that cerebellum, is involved in certain aspects of motor timing, um, particularly those that are very well rehearsed and um, undergone learning. So, classic examples are cla uh, are in in classical conditioning, um, in which you learn, for example, if somebody puffs um, air into your eye with a certain um, interval. So they give you a tone and then 500 milliseconds later they puff air into your eye. And even though unconsciously you might be doing something else like watching a movie, your brain will pick up on this and you'll learn to blink at 500 milliseconds um, just to protect your eye. And this form of timing, this form of simple motor timing, um, does indeed seem to be um, strongly dependent on the cerebellum. So the cerebellum is both um, strongly involved in timing and prediction. And if you think about it, those words, timing and prediction, are really tightly coupled with with each other, right? You have, you look at the, again, go back to the circadian clock. The circadian clock is more than a timer. It's a predictor. It's predicting when the sun will rise. And in a sense, all clocks are doing that. And do you think that as our lives become busier and busier, this is something we have to get better at? Or do we now outsource it because we have clocks everywhere? 
So this again um, goes to the question of what type of time are we talking about? I think the time we're using for speech. So I think people tend to forget that right now their brain is highly attentive to the temporal structure of speech, right? They're paying attention to the pauses in my speech, the duration of syllables, the prosody in my speech. And the example I commonly give here to highlight this is if I say, they gave her cat food or they gave her cat food, right? So we have two different meanings there and we can distinguish between those based on the timing or the pause of the speech. So things like speech and music are, are wouldn't exist without your brain telling time. So that, of course, is independent of our cell phones and watches and smartphones and so forth. So timing at that level and, and body movement, of course, is, is, is not going to change. Now, this subjective sense of time of, well, how long I've been um, uh, waiting in line for, for my food, when is the light, uh, traffic light going to change, is this TV show worth watching, is it going to last too long? Those are this much more subjective sense of time. And our dependence on um, external devices to sort of calibrate our own time certainly changes our relationship with time. Um, and so some people have argued that over the centuries we've shifted more from event time. That is, we eat when it gets dark um, or when we get hungry to this much more rigid um, clock time, which is indeed... Um, governing our lives with um, sort of ever de ever decreasing um, time windows of, of before we just say I'll meet you in an hour and now we say I'll meet you in an hour at, and at 105 or something so I obviously the technology changes our, our relationship with um, time at that level and you know because we have really great ways of actually measuring time and so for musicians for example you you have you can have a metronome on your smartphone coming with you all the time so you you can actually test how good you are at keeping a particular pulse for example um but you know human beings are not perfect in terms of how we keep a pulse and so you know there's this finding that if if there's a a drum program a, dr a program that you know creates drumming that is too accurate, it sounds like a computer. But if you induce some small amount of variability that most of us actually wouldn't pick up consciously, it sounds human. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about like this idea that we are able to perceive these small variations or, you know, that, yeah. I mean, I, this is, I, this is probably something, um, you you know more than I do in terms of this, but but I've read these studies that um, the problem with a lot of the drum machines, the programs, are exactly that they're a bit too precise and rigid, right? Um, and that if you look at the timing of a jazz musician, they have these deviations from the beat, but they're not random deviations as if they're just inaccurate, as if they're just making errors. The There's timing to the timing errors, right? Um, so there's a certain flavor or signature to the uh, to the deviations from the beat, and some of these follow certain mathematical algorithms, which I'm sure people will, by the way, if they're not already including those in the programs. Um, but clearly, if a trained musician can um, distinguish between a drum machine and uh, a drummer, a very good drummer, that's um, consciously or unconsciously imposing some of these um, deviations, um, we can do that. And I don't think it's necessarily something that we could do if I just asked you to discriminate between this 200 and 210 millisecond um, deviation or 200 and 202 millisecond deviation. But these deviations over time is a good example of how we're picking up the general pattern, right? It's not the simple intervals, but it's the sum, the gestalt, if you will, of how those all those tone durations and intervals um, come together in an overall um, a perception. So I think what you're really tapping into is our ability to see the big picture. This is the example of where you're looking at the forest rather than the trees to pick up the general temporal structure of these, of, of, of these patterns. 
So there's one other thing that I've been wondering about. Is there an analog of perfect pitch in people with perfect time? I mean, have you ever studied someone who seems to be just so much better than everyone else at predicting intervals or keeping a beat? That's a great question. I've always wondered that myself. And there's really, and, and you know, what, what is perfect pitch? Perfect pitch is just the ability to assign a certain frequency objectively um, that you hear to an objective calibrated template, right? Uh, the, the matched frequency that it actually is, the veridical frequency. Um, in timing, we are really bad at that. So most people can easily distinguish a 100 millisecond interval from a 200 millisecond interval. But if I, they wake up one morning and I played one of those intervals to them and, they, and, I had to ask, and I ask them, well, is that the 100 or the 200? They might not actually know. So to the best of my knowledge, people are not very good at um, discriminating in absolute terms, which would be the perfect timing, right? They would be able to say exactly that's 100 milliseconds, that's 400 milliseconds. So it's so timing... Um, is generally relative, like most human um, sensory discriminations um, in which we're very good at comparing things but not necessarily assigning an absolute value with exception of perfect pitch. But let me ask you, uh, would a trained musician with a high degree of ac accuracy be able to say this is at um, 100 beats per minute or 102 beats per minute? Yeah, so some are better than others. And, and that's sort of where this question comes from is, you know, how real is that? I haven't actually done a kind of objective test. But certainly, you know, in the rehearsal room, we often have this, you know, every time we at least a string quartet that I work with, every time we need to set a tempo, someone will first, you know, tap what they think it is, and then we'll check it with the metronome. And, you know, people are better than others. Although, you know, yeah, I don't know that that uh, I've ever met someone who's been always perfect, but yeah. there's some people who think they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another problem altogether, right? Yeah. So, of course, we're not the only species that has some kind of a clock in us and some, some ability to tell time. But, you know, it seems like our obsession with time, you know, it's the most common word in our language and so forth, uh, you know, makes us kind of different. So, so what is that all about? Yeah, I think that's um, in many ways one of the signature cognitive abilities of our species um, is that humans are unique not in our ability to tell time. All animals can tell time. They have circadian clock or they know they can discriminate a long tone from a short tone. But what makes humans unique is our ability to conceptualize time and understand the fundamental difference between the past, present, and future. And this is called mental time travel. And you know, if you think about what makes humans humans, um, our ability to build a tool. The first humans to build tools, they had to be thinking about the future, right? They had to be thinking, okay, I'm doing something in the present, but not because doing this is rewarding or useful, but because it will be useful. Um, planting a seed, the most perhaps the most important um, invention of humankind is agriculture, right? Planting a seed is something that you only reap the rewards a year later. Joining those points in time or the, connecting those temporal dots, if you will, is something that only humans seem to be able to do across those time um, frames. And why humans are able to do that is, is a fundamental question. Some people think that um, the human brain has sort of borrowed or co-opted um, the circuits in our brain that allow us to understand space. So, and this is what sometimes we think about as the spatialization of time. And one of the arguments in favor of this is that if you stop and think about this, right, we so often when we're talking about time, we use space, right? We say, oh, I look forward to seeing you again. In hindsight, um, that wasn't a UFO. It was a long day. It was a short day. Um, so we seem to spatialize time. Um, and this, some people argue, is evidence that the uniquely human ability to understand past, present, and future comes from our ability to um, grasp and understand space. That's a really interesting point because our percussionist from the San Francisco Symphony talks about his way of conceptualizing time as being a series of boxes. So when he looks at a measure, he will divide it up into an, you know, the right number of boxes. And then, you know, he kind of has this very visual spatial representation of, of pulse. Anyway, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. And um, so that does suggest, indeed, like a lot of people, 
think about the past as a line to their left and mental timeline, right, and a future to the right. And um, and I think that makes sense that the brain is naturally spatializing time in an order to help us understand it, or in the case of um, this percussionist, maybe to accurately produce the appropriate temporal intervals by tapping into parts of the brain that um, are more spatial. That gets me to sort of one final question, which is, it seems that as we get older, a lot of different cognitive processes slow down for a number of sort of biological reasons uh, in terms of how our brains sort of slowly deteriorate. Uh, do we see that also in terms of uh, people's sense of timing? I think, and yeah, I think that's a general property, unfortunately, <laughs> is um, whether it's memory or speed or reaction time or your ability to do fine temporal discriminations. Um that does um, deteriorate with time. But again, there's two levels to this question of just sort of at the musical precision or speech discrimination, and then our conscious perception, our subjective feeling of the passage of time, of course, also changes with age. But that's a much less uh, clean-cut um, mechanism. But as with most cognitive functions, timing is no exception in terms of your ability to do um, discriminate whether something lasted a second or a half a second. Except maybe there is something good about getting old, which is that, you know, your, your uh, palette of, of experiences to choose from just gets ever larger and larger. And if the whole point of time is to be able to predict the future. I mean, is there a kind of wisdom that can come with age that can make a person use their you know, facility with time better as they get older? I think um, that's certainly true and certainly possible in the extent that what, as you put it, your, your palate or your reservoir of knowledge that you've accumulated over time is, is certainly serves, um, can serve to make better estimates of, of how to use your time, of to correct your own errors. I think that's something we all learn and that's often us underestimated. We recognize that, okay, maybe I often underestimate how long it's going to take to do this task and um, or overestimate so I can compensate that. Of course, um, we're, we're assuming that that's very valid um, in terms of our accumulation of knowledge. Of course, until we start getting really senile and, and forgetting what we do, but that's a bit too depressing <laughs> to get into. <laughs> well, on that note, I want to remind our listeners that Dean Buatamano's book, Your Brain is a Time Machine, The Neuroscience and Physics of Time, is available at booksellers everywhere. Dean, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It was a great pleasure, Andre. Thank you. I want to poke more at that question about why our brains evolve this way, to conceptualize time like this, especially with like the perception of time changing. Yeah, I mean, so we're not the only organisms that have biological clocks, right? A lot of other organisms have ways in which they can track different times of day and, and you know, different ways in which time passes. But we seem particularly obsessed uh, by it, and not just from a psychological point of view, but in terms of how many different ways time is represented in our brain, you know, how many different levels of resolution we can have when we're thinking about how we think about time. And, you know, I think that Dean has, makes a really good point that a lot of neuroscience is now converging Upon, which is this idea that one of the fundamental drivers of, of natural selection in terms of shaping our brain is our need to predict the future. And that, you know, although for me, my obsession with time is largely related to the past and, you know, the things that, you know, I feel like I've lost and, and or that I want to relive or, you know, this kind of the relentless passage of time where, you know, really I'm looking backwards to my life, that that's not that's just like a, a sad byproduct of <laughs> the reason that you know these these different clocks in our brains have evolved which is to tell the future so it kind of made me think about like my obsession with the past really is maladaptive in some ways it's sort of like you know eating ice cream you know our, our bodies didn't evolve to eat ice cream and yet it hits all those wonderful you know, sensory uh, things. It's ice cream. Yeah, it's we ice cream. It's awesome. Can. And I wish I could just eat it all the time. And so maybe I shouldn't be reminiscing so much about the past, but rather looking more towards the future, since that seems to be what these clocks are for. So how universal do you think our human perception and struggle with time is 
when you compare it across the animal kingdom. Like, does a snake have this feature or is it a mammalian feature? <laughs> like, I know it's a really hard question to poke at, but when you start talking about this being an evolutionary trait, like, where along the line did this really start to show that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really profound question. And I think that it really, the more you dig into it, the more you realize like how fundamentally our lives are intertwined with our conception of time. I mean, if you think about a bug, for example, who might only live for 24 hours, you know, that that <laughs> organism's desire to predict the future is on a completely different scale and perhaps maybe not as important. Maybe it's just important for it to find a mate. So it's going to, you know, put all of its sort of mental energy into into finding a mate or finding food or whatever. Um, but then there are animals like tortoises, for example, that live longer than humans. And so what is their relationship with time? I mean, I don't think they have, you know, photo albums that they look back upon from when they were little baby turtles. <laughs> Um, the way we do. But at the same time, you know, I think there probably is this sense that, you know, we all think we're, we're, we're living in the same time, but of course, we're not. And, and so yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm hedging because we don't really know the answer to that question. It depends very much on the organism, because you can have, you know, single celled organisms that have pretty sophisticated ways that they, you know, can track oscillation. And then you have animals who not don't seem to care about it as much. So I'm going to ask the annoying neuroscience question. So this pokes at questions like, what is real? And so if the next question from what is real that I always hear in neuroscience is, is free will a real thing? Man, we just can't get over that. Yeah, no, I know. I told you I was going to ask the annoying neuroscience question. Like, do you see that's where some of this work is heading or somewhere else? Um, I mean, I, you know, I actually see the free will work heading in a different direction, which is to try to understand what we mean by free will, because it's obviously not something that we all agree upon. Uh, and so, you know, I will toss that back to you and say, well, what aspect of free will are you talking about? Hey, I was just asking the annoying neuroscience <laughs> question. As well. All right. Well, maybe we'll have to have a few more beers before I can answer that in any cogent way. <laughs> so that's it for this episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to make a special thank you to our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgul, Kyle Raihala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Miller, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thank you so much. And of course, we'd love your support on our Patreon, but we'd also love your reviews on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So if you have a couple of minutes and you like our podcast, uh, please do give us a review. If you don't like our podcast, thanks for listening. <laughs> You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own gripes, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Time Lord Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geech. See you next week. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com. You are entitled to a free audiobook with a 30-day trial if you go to audible.com slash inquiring minds and sign up, they have an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And of course, you can get Dean Bonamano's book absolutely free. And one more reminder, if you liked this episode and you like inquiring minds in general, you'll probably also like the podcast Story Collider, which tells personal stories about how science affects people's lives. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>